Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining us today. My name is Patty Jane Geller, and I'm the Policy Analyst for Nuclear Deterrence and Missile Defense at the Heritage Foundation. It's my pleasure to be hosting today's event on the recent decision to withdraw from the Treaty on Open Skies. Before we dive in, I'd like to remind you that we want you to be part of the conversation. Please submit your questions throughout this event in the questions box on the side of your control panel. Be sure to tell us your name, affiliation, or where you're tuning in from. We'll get to as many of your questions as possible later on in the event. We'll also be sharing the recording of today's conversation with you within the next couple of days. So today we're here to talk about President Trump's decision back in May to withdraw from the Treaty on Open Skies. Signed by 34 countries in 1992, the Open Skies Treaty allows parties to conduct observation flights over another party's territory using aircraft loaded with observation sensors that meet certain technical requirements. These overflights are meant to enable the US, Russia, and other European countries to do things like observe military exercises, detect early warning of aggression, and gather other imagery, all with the goal of building confidence and transparency. However, citing years of Russian violations of and non-compliance with the treaty, the president has given his six months notice to withdraw. This announcement has sparked many questions. Is withdrawing from open skies worth the cost? Can the president legally do so? And what does this mean for the future of US-Russian relations? Fortunately, we have a great panel lined up for you this afternoon to enlighten us. So now I'd like to invite our speakers to join me on screen as I introduce them. First, we have Tim Morrison of the Hudson Institute, who has previously served as the Deputy Assistant to the President for National Security in the Trump administration. Next, we have Pranay Vadi with the Nuclear Policy Program at the Carnegie Endowment for Peace. A lawyer by training, Pranay comes with experience at the State Department's Bureau of Arms Control, Verification, and Compliance. And finally, we have our own Dr. Peter Brooks, a senior research fellow here at Heritage, specializing in WMD and counterproliferation. So today we're going to start by having our three panelists each speak for a few minutes, outlining their positions on the open skies debate. Following their remarks, we'll move on to a moderated discussion and then take your questions. Um, so with that, we're going to start with Tim. Uh, whenever you're ready, you have the floor. Great, thank you very much, Patty Jane. So uh, let me just start with a few basic uh, premises here. Treaties are not sacred cows. They're not holy writ. Support for a treaty or an agreement is not a shibboleth for security or support for alliances. We should be constantly examining whether a treaty or an agreement that made sense one day makes sense today or will make sense tomorrow. National security can never be set on cruise control and simply forgotten. And I think that really well encapsulates the approach that the administration has taken. Uh, whether on the JCPOA, whether on the INF Treaty, on open skies, and I think that process is underway as we speak on the New START Treaty as the administration seeks a, a new form of arms control more appropriate to 21st century threats, uh, which uh, means we can no longer afford to merely look at nuclear arms control as a U.S.-Russia problem. It now has to be a U.S.-Russia-China problem. So on the case of the Open Skies Treaty, the national security apparatus of our government took a look at it and decided that this treaty no longer makes sense. What made sense in 1955, what maybe made sense in 1992, uh, what maybe made sense in 2002 does not make sense in 2020. The treaty, as we know, was signed by 34 nations, including Russia, uh, and it aimed to increase transparency and confidence building and promote stability by allowing signatory nations to conduct surveillance flights over one another's territories to observe military installations and other objects. It is not, and it never was, arms control. It's transparency and confidence building. And looking at the record, does anyone think that Russia is more transparent today than it was in 2002? Do we have more confidence in our bilateral relationship with Russia today than we did in 2002? If we have any more confidence about our relationship with Russia today, it's because we are more confident that they are a failing actor, a failing power, that will periodically lash out to attempt to hang on to some sense of geopolitical relevance. Russia is violating the Open Skies Treaty. It was not in compliance going back as far as 2005 
excuse me, as far as 2005. And there have been long-standing concerns about how Russia misuses the treaty. In 2016, Lieutenant General Vincent Stewart, then head of DIA, said that, quote, the things that you can see, the amount of data that you can collect, the things that you can do with post-processing allow Russia, in my opinion, to get incredible foundational intelligence on critical infrastructure, bases, ports, all of our facilities. And so from my perspective, it gives them a significant advantage. More recently, Bill Avenina, the Director of National Counterintelligence and Security Center, stated, quote, for years, Russia has used the Open Skies Treaty to collect intelligence on civilian infrastructure and other sensitive sites in America, posing an unacceptable risk to our national security. Take, for example, what the Russians did with Open Skies in 2017. They used the treaty overflight to conduct surveillance of the White House and the president's Bedminster Resort. Now, I worry about what the Russians were trying to learn about how the president is kept safe and in command of our government using the Open Skies Treaty. This was never allowed, this was never contemplated when the treaty was ratified. And in fact, Russia has consistently blocked any overflight in proximity of their senior leaders. Sometimes there's a time for mirror imaging. As I noted, Russia in 2020 isn't the same Russia as in 2002. Their intentions have shifted under Colonel Putin, and that must be taken into account. To our allies who say that the treaty is important to monitoring Russia, I've, I ask now and I've asked in the past, did the treaty help you see the invasion of Ukraine? Did it help you see the illegal seizure of an occupation of Crimea? Did it provide you warning of the Russian invasion of Syria? Did it provide you warning about the introduction of Russian forces into Libya? When I talk to Europeans, there's often a clear divide between ministries of defense who understand the threat posed by Russia's misuse of the treaty, and for example, ministries of foreign affairs who have, well, let's be frank, a different responsibility set than a ministry of defense. But to allies who feel like they need to have the treaty to gain access to what is happening in Russia, I say again, this isn't 1955, it's not 1992, it's not 2002. Commercial imagery is cheap, it's unclassified, it's freely shareable. Our allies don't need their own NRO to replicate what they got from open skies, if anything at all. Our allies can invest scarce defense dollars that are being used to implement the treaty into actual military capability. And with that, I wanna thank the Heritage Foundation for the invitation to be here today virtually, and I look forward to our Q&A discussion. Great, thank you, Tim. Um, now we're gonna hand it off to Pranay. Thanks, Betty Jane. Um, let me echo um, Tim's thanks to, to Heritage, um, to Dr. Brooks, Tim, and uh, you, Patty Jane, especially for moderating this panel on an important topic. Um, I know we're all dealing with the work from home um, and trying to make the best of virtual events, and I was glad to hear that uh, a lot of folks wanted to tune in today. Um, so obviously, I, I have. It may not be a surprise. I disagree with a lot of what Tim said, but I I do also agree with a lot of his characterization of um, you know Russia's Russia's behavior in the treaty and behavior um, with regard to our European allies. Um, uh, you know, I do think that we should we should back up and think about the the sort of original intent behind Open Skies, and, and I think Tim um, laid out really helpfully what the treaty was intended to do. And maybe where our differences are are sort of on the issue of whether we should stay in or get out and what what benefits us and allied security more so open skies is part of this fundamental bargain that the united states has made with europe and european allies and partners at the beginning of the cold war we're going to look out for our ally security so through a combination of deterrence investments and having negotiations with the soviet union and then russia um, we needed these two things in a package deal so us could look out for european security and more importantly, tie Europe together as a democratic bulwark against Russia. I think the idea for Open Skies was originally driven by several factors, two of which I'll highlight. Um, you know, as Tim mentioned, the Soviet Union then, and arguably Russia today, uh, was very opaque, especially with regard to its military operations. The Kremlin maintained a closed society for decades, and it was really hard to know what they were doing in the political or military space. And then, as I mentioned before, the U.S. had strong interest in tying European countries together as a bloc against Russia. I think both of those things are true again today, to the extent that they were not true in the early 2000s or in the 90s. Um, they've certainly become more true after 2014. So I'll try to make the hard case. Why should the United States stay in the treaty? So today, the majority of states, parties, and open skies are NATO allies or otherwise close U.S. partners. They value the treaty. They actually gain information from it. And we shouldn't ignore the fact that 
open skies of today is not the open skies of 1992. The U.S. actually put significant effort into updating the agreement, coordinating its implementation of the, agree implementation of the agreement with allies to benefit U.S. and NATO security after 2014 especially. So I think the treaty is on balance still in U.S. interests to stay in. Um, withdrawal, as I see it, will impose little cost on Russia. It's not going to convince Russia to do more, um, to be more malleable in arms control negotiations, to do more to benefit the West. And we're definitely going to be imposing costs on our allies. Now, as far as the uh, affirmative case for open skies, um, you know, as I mentioned, the United States has led uh, efforts to improve technical features of the treaty. Uh, the U.S. chairs the technical working group um, in a series of decisions reached in 2014 and 15. Um, the U.S. drove changes to the agreement to take into account how to handle digital imagery, how to deter the mishandling of digital imagery, perhaps most important, how to ensure that data is not transmitted um, or duplicated in unauthorized ways and that it's processed correctly. So to the extent that we have concerns about Russia's manipulation of digital imagery for other purposes, including, as Tim pointed out, um, observation of civilian infrastructure, things that have nothing to do with our military operations. This is a pretty important step, and U.S. diplomats have been working for years to secure these changes to the treaty. It's also important to note that the U.S. gets a copy of everything that Russia images. Um, this not only deters cheating or the misuse of sensors, but it also gives us an, a window into what is Russia looking at. Um, we wouldn't have that same view based on what Russian observation satellites may be looking at or what they may purchase in the commercial imagery market. Um, so we can take better mitigation steps over time to secure our own military infrastructure. The U.S. also led updates, uh, led the effort to update procedures um, to certify new digital sensors. This is something that um, was an issue. Um, there was legislation on it in the mid 2010s, um, and uh, it's something that's been reported on quite a bit. There are much more intrusive procedures used to approve sensors for use um, in every mission. And that makes sure that a sensor has not been changed or improved since its original certification. So these procedures were in place for certification of the Russian digital sensors. Um, and that certification took place during the Trump administration in 2017 and 2018 for the two Russian aircraft. I think the, the United States awarded $40 million in 2016 to replace the current wet film camera system on OC-135B aircraft with digital sensors as well. And the Canadians in Germany are also operating digital sensors. So why should these be a reason for the United States to stay in? So there are always options to do intelligence sharing, uh, the purchase of commercial imagery, and share that with our allies and partners. I think that at the end of the day, it will be time consuming as an exercise for U.S. intelligence professionals. It'll also be uh, costly from a commercial imagery standpoint. At the same time, even if we're able to mitigate any loss of imagery sharing, um, should we withdraw from open skies, open skies imagery is regarded as tamper proof. The veracity of U.S. provided imagery, whether it's commercial or through intelligence channels, is contested by friends and adversaries alike. It's just an unfortunate truth about American intelligence information today that and and this information is going to be a major prerequisite if we want to build coalitions to sanction Russia, to uh, take further action to deter counter-Russian military activity in Eastern Europe or in the surrounding waters. Countries don't necessarily want to rely on the United States for this information. And as Tim points out, this is a different conversation between, you know, um, those of us who talk to ministries of defense and those of us who talk to ministries of foreign affairs. And a lot of European countries have a pretty big firewall between those political elements in their government and their intelligence agencies. And while um, there are a series of Russian violations, um, two of which are longstanding, and I don't want to get into a ton of detail now as my time's uh, running out, I think it's important to note that ultimately these are violations that the United States has tried for a long time to fix. I think recently the United States in um, coordination with its allies has had some luck in getting Russia to um, acquiesce a bit, um, especially in the overflight of Kaliningrad, which was recent. Um, and so, if anything, I think the Trump administration could take some credit for getting diplomacy to work within the context of the Open Skies Treaty. And whatever they've earned in terms of pressuring Russia to better abide by the treaty's terms in the past two years will be lost if the United States leaves the treaty. Um, I'll stop there, and I look forward to the Q&A. And again, uh, thank you for hosting this discussion. It's good to see you all. Great. Thank you. Um, so now we'll finish it off with uh, Dr. Brooks. 
thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. And thank you, uh, Tim and Pernay, and of course, Patty Jane for, for hosting this. Um, I'm in that unenviable position of being panelist number three, where, like we used to say in the Congress, uh, everything's been said, but not everybody has said it. Uh, and not knowing what my colleagues were going to say, I decided to go off in a little bit of a different uh, direction. But I'll be brief, because I know we do want to get to questions and answers. More broadly, I thought this question on Open Skies Treaty begs the question of Russia's use and interest in arms control and confidence and security building measures. Uh, despite years of calling for Russia to come into full compliance with the Open Skies Treaty, it decided not to. Uh, fully understanding with plenty of warning that the United States would likely withdraw. Now, nobody yet, I was kind of surprised, I thought Tim might mention this besides the critical infrastructure, but the longstanding violations by the Russians of the Open Skies Treaty. Uh, I mean, even going back to 2010, there, there have been restrictions on overflights over Georgia, uh, particularly South Ossetia and Abkhazia. That goes back a decade. Um, the flights over Kaliningrad goes back six years to 2014. I know there's been some changes, but of course that came after years and years of the Americans and the Europeans trying to pressure Russia to come into full compliance. Uh, just last year, we had an issue with a U.S.-Canadian overflight request of the Center 2019 military exercises, which certainly goes against the grain of what the treaty was, was meant to do. And then, of course, recently we had this issue where Russia tried to designate an airfield in Ukraine as an open skies refueling uh, airport, which was obviously with the, the idea that to say that Ukraine is Russian, Russian territory. Uh, this was in Crimea, obviously. There's another issue out there, too, that we really didn't get to. Pernay mentioned it a bit. This isn't a Russian violation. Actually, I'll, I'll, I'll pass on that. I'll come back to that if we, if we need to. But, of course, it, it, there's been a lot of violations of this treaty by the Russians going back a, a decade. And um, this, of course, comes on top of Russia's material breach of the INF Treaty, the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty of 1987 with the testing and deployment of the SSCA cruise. Now, allegations about that and open source go back to 2008. The Obama administration first mentioned it publicly, I believe, in 2014. And obviously, the Trump administration uh, you know, decided to withdraw from the treaty. But this is a serious, egregious breach of an arms control treaty uh, going, back to, uh, going back to 1987. Then again, this comes on top of concerns about Moscow's Chemical Weapons Convention compliance, including the use of the, the military-grade nerve agent Novichok against a former GRU officer in the UK, Possible assistance to a, a Syrian a chemical weapons attack in, in Duma, I believe that was in 2018, and the existence of a pharmaceutical-based agent, uh, offensive, offensive pharmaceutical-based agent program, probably in the, in the guise of uh, fentanyl or, car, or carfen. And of course, there's this suspension of involvement in the Conventional Armed Forces in Europe Agreement and its compliance with the Vienna documents on confidence and security building measures, which, of course, these large, unannounced, uh, what they call SNAP exercises, large-scale exercises, are, are tremendous of tremendous concern, especially what we saw in 2008 in Georgia. Uh, others might point out Russia's compliance with the Biological Weapons Convention or the Threshold Test Ban Treaty. I mean, is Russia really interested in arms control and confidence and security building measures? I mean, considering Russia's record, my concern is if there isn't pushback, whether it's pressure or leaving agreements, we're creating a moral hazard uh, when giving into bad behavior on the part of the Russians only encourages more of it. I think the Trump administration deserves credit for demanding compliance on agreements like INF and OST and showing that there are consequences for under or non-performance uh, with its decisions to withdraw uh, under INF and under the uh, Open Skies Treaty. I think the Trump administration also deserves credit for leaving the door open to returning to existing agreements or creating new agreements that provide stability and security and mutual benefit. I'm not sure if Russia is really interested in the predictability, openness, and mutual benefit that arms control and confidence and security building measures can provide. And this must be raising questions uh, in the minds of those looking at New START, um, which Patty Jane is an expert on, that will expire in February of, of 2021. Uh, can Russia be trusted on arms control and confidence and security building measures? So I think I'll stop there and we'll open it up, up to questions. But this is you know, part of the broader question is about Russia's record in general on arms control and um, what we've seen over the, last, over the last few years. So thank you very much. I'll turn it over to you, Patty Jane. Great. Thanks, Pete. That was great. 
Um, so I, I want to take a second to remind the, the audience to begin submitting your questions if you haven't already or if you have any. Um, and I'll get to them in a little bit, but I'm as you guys are taking a moment to, to think of your questions, I'm going to go ahead and jump right in here. Um, Dr. Brooks, you did a great job of outlining um, Russia's recent violations of not just open skies, but um, a number of, of different international security and arms control agreements. And, and I wanted to give uh, you, Tim and Pranay, a chance to debate this a little bit. Um, so um, Pranay, in particular, you make a great case for why um, remaining in open skies um, gives us enough benefits that, that make it worth staying. But I'm wondering how, how do you weigh these violations um, of arms control treaties against the benefits of remaining in open skies? Where do, where, do, where do Russia's behavior fall in your calculus for remaining in the treaty? Well, thanks for the easy question, I guess. Um, this is one of those <laughs> um, issues I've thought about a lot, not in terms of how I feel about it, but in terms of how to answer this question, because I, I know that it's, it's, and Dr. Brooks, you made the point very articulately, this sort of overall concept of Russian behavior in arms control agreements, and how do we, should we, should we link behavior in one agreement to behavior in the other agreement? Um, should we um, take each agreement on its own? And look, I don't, I can't subscribe to one tribe or the other on this one. I, I think it's sort of very case dependent. From my perspective, the question that should be asked when um, you reach a point within the interagency's consideration of what to do with a Russian violation or a hypothetical country X, I think more often than not, it's Russia. So we can just go with Russia. Um, we have to wonder if the withdrawal actually going to impose some costs, um, some material costs on Russia. So. Um, Peter brought up the example of uh, Russia's material breach of the INF Treaty. In that situation, um, the United States had been involved in diplomatic and intelligence consultations with allies for a number of years um, since the violation was, um, was sort of reported on um, and uh, U.S. diplomatic efforts began in earnest. Um, allies came around, and I think the Trump administration has taken credit for this, and, and some of it is certainly due, to supporting that decision to withdraw. Um, from my perspective, withdrawal from the INF Treaty is justified if it imposed, indeed imposed costs on Russia. It's really hard to tell whether or not that cost imposition is actually happening or not. I think if withdrawal were timed with uh, U.S. military deployments, whether it's a, a treaty-violating missile or what would be a treaty-violating missile or um, additional uh, for deployments of U.S. military forces in Europe, then maybe you can package those sort of policy options together in a way. And that makes it a little bit easier. In the case of open skies, um, allies seem universally upset about the U.S. withdrawal announcement. Maybe that changes in the next few months. Uh, I doubt it. This seems so central. Um, you know, as, as Tim mentioned, um, arms control agreements shouldn't be sacred cows. I would say open skies seems like the closest thing to a sacred cow uh, for some of our European allies. And we may not think that's the right way to look at these issues, but we have to respect the fact that other countries do. Um, and so if open skies withdrawal in some way would impose real costs on Russia and get them to change their behavior, then withdrawal makes sense. I don't see that that's the case with open skies withdrawal. And again, the, the risks and costs of open skies withdrawal to the U.S. seem very clear to me. Tim, why don't you go ahead? Do you chime in? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, it sort of begs the question of what the objective here is. I think the objective here is a treaty that the Russians, yes, they were, were violating it. That gets into um you know old arms control speak you can quote freddie clay after detection what you can you can look at these things in in and abstractions as oh their violations have to be punished that's that's all well and good i believe they do if arms control is going to continue to be uh viable as a national security tool but but sometimes this isn't an abstraction sometimes this is a very real risk and when the intelligence community and military leadership tell us year after year after year that this treaty is a central tool to the Russians to collect intelligence uh, to target critical infrastructure. Sometimes you just have to deny Russia that sort of malign tool to threaten our security. So it's not about can you can you impose a cost on the Russians. It's about sometimes you have to stop the bleeding. Uh, and denying Russia a vital intelligence collection tool that they are using to target critical infrastructure, as plainly stated by our military and intelligence leadership, sometimes that's important enough. Um, and you can look at it from a perspective of 
um, you know, matching this with conventional de de deployments. You can look at this from the perspective of uh, matching this with um, sanctions. This isn't punishing Russia on its own for invading Ukraine or for using chemical weapons against a NATO ally or for invading Syria. This is stopping the bleeding. This is denying them a tool they are using to target U.S. critical infrastructure. Um, and I get to find a military leader who thinks there isn't a difference between flying a satellite in geostationary orbit at 22,000 miles versus flying an aircraft with an infrared sensor at 3,000 AGL. There is a difference. This will deny Russia critical intelligence collection. Uh, and sometimes that's the, that's the end state here. I, I make a prediction, and uh, uh, Pradeh, we can make this the terms of our debate uh, for, uh, for who has to go to Nevada Zemlya in the winter. Um, but the treaty will go away, and you know what the Europeans are going to realize when it does? The world didn't end. They have plenty of other uh, means of collecting whatever information they think they're obtaining from open skies. They'll have plenty of other information coming in through commercial imagery uh, and, and through U.S. intelligence sharing. I was going to add, I mean, uh, Pernay and Tim really kind of uh, covered everything. Uh, generally, there's a couple of minor points I, I would add as well. Um, you know, will this, this cause any sort of reputational cost to the Russians, uh, you know, calling them out uh, in a big way? Um, will it, will it uh, to influence European audiences uh, about this? Now, I'm, I'm very strong on transatlantic ties and concern, concerns about decoupling, you know, things along that line. But the fact of the matter is that Russia has been in longstanding uh, violation and once again, going back to the, the moral hazard. So there are some reputational costs. You know, also, you know, how will this affect the, the New START negotiations? Uh, we know that uh, many of our mutual friend and Marshall Billingsley, Marshall and I were on the Hill together many years ago and at the Pentagon. Uh, you know, they had recent talks in Vienna about the future of arms control with the Russians. I haven't gotten a readout on that. But, you know, how does it how does it affect them when you look at Russia's, uh, you know, bigger record? And another thing, of course, for the United States in terms of this program uh, it seemed to me, and I'm happy to be proven wrong, but it seemed to me it'd be kind of pricey. Uh, you know, we were talking about having to recapitalize these two open skies aircraft, these two OC-135s at the cost of, I think, $250 million for two aircraft. And it's, uh, I also thought that it seemed like the mission costs were pretty high from the calculations I had. Maybe I didn't have the right numbers when I was looking at this, but it did seem pretty costly in terms of that. And of course, the treaty, the treaty will, the treaty will go on and the United States will have to find ways to uh, work with our European allies to ensure, which I think is another important point that I would be interested in Pernay and Tim's views on is how do the U.S. protect its interests um, in the Open Skies Treaty in Europe? We have forces there, we have bases there, we have equipment and things along that line. So that's another question I think that's, that's out there that's, that's going to be, that's going to be important to be, uh, to be answered and discussed. Yeah, I think you all are making good points. Um, I think we may as well go into um, what Peter just brought up, something that I was curious about as well. And I see we have a few questions about um, what happens if uh, the United States um, officially withdraws from the treaty in the next few months and our European allies and Russia remain in the treaty. How do we protect U.S. interests um, in Europe, considering that the U.S. Uh, still has forces in Europe that Russia may be able to conduct overflights over? Um, I'd love to hear any of your thoughts on as how much of this is a concern and, and what can we do about it um, should we officially leave the treaty? I'll, I'll start. Yeah, I mean, this is a concern. This is not a new concern. Uh, yes, it'll be a different posture for the United States. Um, if we leave the treaty and Russia stays in, uh, there's some question about what, well, whether Russia will stay in or not. Um, but we've had this, this concern before. We, have, we are able to exercise because it's happening in the United States a different posture for um, uh, for for minimizing what the Russians can see uh, when they're flying over CONUS than we can when they're flying over our bases in Europe. This has been a long time problem. We have we have ways that we do this now, and we'll continue to work with our allies with whom we have a security relationship um, when we've left the treaty, assuming Russia stays in, uh, to deal with any um, concerns that are unique to that circumstance. But the idea that somehow um, if we leave Russia stays in, they continue flying over our forces in Europe. The idea that that hasn't been a problem since the treaty's inception, especially as we've watched Russia begin to misuse the treaty, we've been dealing with that problem for quite some time. We have ways to deal with it. 
Um, and we'll continue to work with our allies with whom we'll have, um, uh, we'll continue to have a security relationship and a treaty alliance um, uh, if, if we leave in Russia and Russia does not. Yeah, I mean, I kind of trust what Tim said on this. I think the U.S. will have to figure it out in the circumstance that it's no longer a party to the treaty but maintains um, forces in Europe. Um, I think this is one of the big questions, though. We don't know um, exactly what the U.S. will do. We don't know if allies are, are rubbed the wrong way on this. I mean, again, the, the U.S. asked allies to lead a diplomatic effort to pressure Russia to resolve some of these compliance concerns. The administration asked allies to convince the United States to stay in the agreement. And then finally, the United States notified withdrawal without providing much lead time to allies who are still undertaking these diplomatic initiatives on behalf of us and our concerns with Russia's compliance. So, you know, I, I'm not as confident as Tim that everything will be fine. I do think the world will still be standing. I hope that that is not the bar by which we judge arms control agreements. Otherwise, maybe my job stability is not as good as I thought it was yesterday. But I think it's going to take a lot of tough conversations to ensure that U.S. interests are protected in Europe, that allies who remain within the treaty with Russia are able to both conduct their operations under the treaty as well as look out for U.S. interests. And I think that by withdrawing in the way that we have withdrawn, we're just making those conversations that much more difficult. And, you know, as, as we've all had different conversations with different levels of allies in the past, I mean, those those will be time consuming. And I'm not 100 percent confident that those issues will be resolved before the you know withdrawal actually formally takes effect. Can I, can I just say something? Um, I, 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 Tim may have been out of government at this point, but I, mean, I started really looking at this last fall. And I wrote a paper for Heritage, short paper, and I said, stay in the Open Skies Treaty, dot, 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 for now. Um, and that was my view in about December. You know, I looked at all of the things, the pluses and minuses. And one of the things I called for, not that the government followed my <laughs> My suggestion, but I was happy to see that they did in, in when this uh, was rolled out in, in May, uh, was that they did a, a serious interagency review of this issue. Uh, and it appears from the comments, I think, that Tim made that, the, you know, DNI, the director of national intelligence and his offices were deeply involved in this, uh, um, you know, to, to evaluate. And I also understand that the administration went through a long consultation uh, with uh, the European allies. And I, I heard there was even a questionnaire. I'm not sure if this is true or not. A questionnaire saying, well, what do you value about open skies? So, you know, this thing, this took, I would say, you know, this went, you know, seven, eight, nine months, uh, uh, you know, from last fall until the, the late the late spring this year before they decided to get out. So I don't quite agree with Pernay that this seemed to be a... Um, a shock. Maybe the final word was a shock, but I think everybody kind of knew it. And there were a lot of consultations, uh, you know, going on and they did a, a thorough interagency review and the scales just ended up in one direction and, and not in the other. And uh, we don't have access to all the information that the government had, obviously. But um, I think, that, you know, there's credit to that. You know, I was worried that they're looking last fall, September, October, that it was just going to be done. But no, I think the, that the government, the administration did a good, strong interagency review of the costs and benefits of the of the program and and uh, and consulted with allies and then ultimately decided that it was in their best interest. One of the other thing I want to point out is that uh, Pernay made a good uh, presentation on the INF treaty, but one of the things we didn't we didn't talk about at all in this is of course is the issue of China, right? I mean, you know, that's that's another major issue in the INF treaty, not just the material breach on the part of the of the Russians. It's, you know, 90% of China's ballistic missile force or cruise missile force um, would fall outside of the INF. And that's, you know, that's hampering us in our, our Indo-Pacific strategy. So that's something I just wanted to point out. So it's not just us and Russians in some cases, especially when it comes to INF. But um, I'll, I'll stop there and, and turn it back to Ben Jane. Um, so one last topic I want to mention before we turn to the audience is that so when the president announces withdrawal, there meant there are still six months. Now it's fewer than six months. But there's still time before the U.S. actually leaves open skies. Um, and the administration has stated that should Russia return to compliance within those six months, the U.S. would um, reconsider withdrawal. So I guess I have a two part question. I'm wondering if any of you can en envision a scenario where. Russia returns to compliance, what that might look like um, that might um, prompt the administration to change its mind on, on leaving open skies. Um, and then I'm, I'm also curious um, about Congress and Congress, Congress's role in trying to prevent the, the president from 
officially withdrawing from the treaty. And I know, Pranay, you've worked on this. Um, is it too late for Congress to take action? Um, will this be a political fight um, in this year's um, defense policy debates? Um, so there are two kind of two parts there, whoever wants to take it first. Sure, I'll happy to touch on this first. Um, so I guess as far as your first question, um, for a number of reasons, I don't think Russia will return to full compliance. Um, I think that that track record is obvious to us all. Um, I don't, even if they did, I think that the concerns the administration has highlighted, um, and I can return to the actual compliance issues as well, the concerns the administration has highlighted go beyond the Open Skies Treaty. Um, I think as, as Tim has pointed out a few times, um, Russia is using the treaty in a way that the administration does not like. Um, their use of the treaty in the way the administration does not like is not a violation of the treaty. It is Russia just using the treaty to do things that we don't like. Um, you know, the, in the, at the State Department, we have these sort of varying degrees of like concerns versus violations and things like that when we, do, we did compliance analysis. But I think it's unlikely that Russia is going to adjust its behavior within the treaty and its implementation of the treaty in a way that satisfies this administration. And so I, I don't see there really being a, a universe in which the administration um, suspends its own um, withdrawal process. As far as can Congress act, um, look, I think in the, the Lawfare article um, I co-authored with uh, Scott Anderson um, points this out. There's not really a slam dunk case for Congress to pursue a legal remedy to prevent withdrawal from a treaty. Um, we try to highlight where legal challenges are um, have better standing um, and what would need to be sort of the words used to create that better standing. I don't think, you know, arms control proponents, including myself, should be relying on Congress to intervene at this point in any way. Um, the clock is already ticking um, for Congress, um, who would likely use the national defense authorization process to try to enact any legislation to block a withdrawal. Um, first, that, that process will not wrap up before the six-month clock is ticked. Uh, second, um, this would require Congress going to the courts. And um, the last time that happened, and others may remember better than I, you know, was Dennis Kucinich um, trying to prevent the ABM treaty withdrawal, um, which was not successful. And so I, I don't think that that's a, a great course of action from a legal standpoint. It may be a good course of action from a political messaging standpoint, because there is bipartisan support in Congress for staying in the treaty. Um, and there are, uh, and I would say that the majority of people who have expressed opinions on open skies in Congress, maybe not the loudest voices, but the majority of opinions are supportive of the agreement. So I, I don't think relying on Congress to stop the withdrawal is probably the best course of action, but certainly Congress will uh, make noise as the date gets closer for withdrawal to be formal. I, I would just argue, I would just largely agree with uh, with Pranay, which is uncomfortable for us both. Um, if, um, if, the, if the Congress had, had real authority here, we'd still own the Panama Canal. Um, but, but we don't, and this is, this is clearly within the, pre the President's Article II authorities. Um, congressional enactments or, or otherwise notwithstanding, you, Congress can't find the President do something unconstitutional. Um, and so it really just becomes a question of, and this is a conversation I, I've had with uh, allies, both while in government and outside of government, um, returning to compliance is one thing, and it would be nice, and the Russians aren't going to do it. Um, uh, but even if they return to compliance, the treaty contemplates that Russia, for example, could fly infrared sensors over the United States, synthetic aperture radar sensors over the United States. That is not acceptable in Vladimir Putin's Russia. We cannot trust them to do that. Boris Yeltsin, sure, whatever. Um, uh, Gorbachev, sure, whatever. But these are things that cannot be fixed as long as the corrupt thugs currently in charge of Russia remain in charge of Russia. We cannot trust these people. Um, and that's why I, I started off by talking about what may have been okay in 2002 is not okay in 2020. It gets back to, you know, how did we get to start one? How did we get to INF? We got there because we had Ronald Reagan and Gorbachev. We could not have gotten INF. We could not have gotten start one um, if, if, if Colonel Putin was in charge. Patty Jane, I, I'd be interested in Tim and if we have time and Pernay's views on how this impinges these most recent violations and Russia's arms control and CSBM behavior on, on New START. I don't want to get, go down the road. I'm sure you'll have an event on New START or 
have had one and have future ones, but I'd be interested in their views as to with their experiences, how they would kind of look at, at New Start with um, considering, which, which I, there are no known violations of that, to my knowledge, um, how they would view Russia, considering what we've seen with open skies. Yeah, I'm interested in, in that as well. Do you guys, um, in the interest of time, want to take a minute to, to give a bit on, on how you think that the withdrawal from open skies um, might or might not impact um, ongoing New Start negotiations with Russia? Well, New Start, finally a topic Tim and I agree wholeheartedly on. Um, look, I, I don't think it will impact negotiations as I as I have sort of observed from the outside. Um, Marshall Billingsley has has stated what his priorities are. Um, it's nuclear in nature. It involves Russia and China. Um, there's no mention of um, old Cold War or post Cold War um, regional stability and transparency regimes in Europe as being a part of it. Now, I think there's an argument to be made for what we're going to do about conventional arms control, period, um, as it relates to European security. I think that conversation has been put off for a long time. I don't think um, in the views of those in charge right now, it rises to the level of importance as uh, what to do about New START or what to do after New START. Um, you know, from my perspective, it's hard to imagine a scenario in which there's an arms control agreement that limits Russia um, on February 6, 2021, that is not New START, unless um, these are the fastest negotiations that can take place and the Chinese finally come to the table. Now, um, maybe I'm just pessimistic about that, but um, I'll keep my comments brief and give Tim a chance to respond. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll take a couple, a couple of different points there. I, I agree with Brene, um, Open Skies and New START are not at all associated with each other. Again, Open Skies is not arm, Open Skies is not arm control. Um, uh, so let's not, you know, let's not uh, miscategorize it. Um, New Start is its own is its own issue, um, and I think the administration is trying to look at the calculus of um, whether what was what may have been acceptable in 2010 is acceptable today, given how the world has changed. Everything that General Ashley um, and others have talked about in the open about everything Russia is doing and and China is doing in the nuclear space, um, you know, I. You know, the reason we don't have any conventional arms control is because Russia violates every single agreement. I mean, Russia didn't comply with CFE for a single day of its existence. So it's kind of awkward to say we should somehow have a restoration of conventional uh, arms control in Europe when Russia didn't honor it the first time. Or they have we somehow figured out a way to get them to honor agreements? I mean, we've been talking about all the agreements they don't honor. I'd be interested to see what conventional arms control could look like, but we have to be realistic that Russia won't honor it because they don't honor these things. Um, you know, and with, so, you know, with respect to um, New START, I guess the last thing I would say is let's not forget um, that START 1 expired for something like 10 months before New START uh, entered into force. Again, the world didn't end. There was no nuclear escalation cycle. There was no um, crisis instability. Um, and that's because you could make an argument that we were negotiating. And so there was um, a sense on both sides that it was okay. Some of us were working in, on, in the Congress and our bosses thought it was very important that we maintain the nuclear inspections by Senator Luger, I recall, had legislation on privileges and immunities. The Obama administration wasn't interested in that. We could have at least tried to keep some of the inspections going. We didn't. The world didn't end. We got, we got new start. Um, so the idea that if maybe there wasn't anything in place on February 6th, that would somehow be that damaging or destabilizing. I mean, our experience in the Obama administration proves that that isn't so. Um, I think the important thing is uh, for the Russians to have a sense for which administration they're gonna be dealing with. Uh, and that's something the whole world will presumably know, hopefully, on November 4th. Um, uh, and the Russians will either realize we need to sit down and negotiate with President Trump because he's gonna be here for four more years. So. How do we work together to limit unconstrained nuclear weapons? How do we work together to bring China to the table while they race to parity? Um, uh, or they'll get a sense for, for who's going to be in the, uh, in the Biden administration. But I worry that the Biden administration has already undermined a lot of its leverage by saying, plainly, we will extend the treaty for five years. So the Russians know that if they get uh, a President Biden, they're going to get what they want, which is new start extended for five years. And that means they don't have to come back to the table and negotiate anything they don't want to negotiate, like non-strategic nuclear weapons, for at least five years. So we have about uh, 10 minutes left here, and I want to get to a couple of our audience questions. Um, we had 
handful of good questions. Fortunately, we did address a lot of them so far throughout our discussion. Um, and I want to get through a couple, um, and there are a couple here that I can, I think, combine. So first we have Good question from Christopher, Christian Milford. Um, in view of our competitors' malign intentions with the treaty, could there be a better and more ver verifiable future Open Skies Treaty? Um, and then we had a similar question, I think that goes along from Dan Hattery. Um, what other effective means, if any, are there for positive engagement with Russia on military issues? So can we do a new, new Open Skies? Are there other ways for engagement? Or do we have a pessimistic outlook on the future? So I'll, I'll start off and then Pranay can explain all the reasons I'm wrong and evil. Um, you know, again, you know, what, are, what problem are we trying to solve with Open Skies? Um, it's, not, it's not clear to me what, what that problem is. Um, open Skies uh, hasn't done anything to promote confidence or, or transparency. Um, unlike in 2002, we have commercial imagery widely available, easily shareable, cheap, uh, unclassified, so you know, I th and this gets to the point that I think what the allies are going to realize when, when and if the United States leaves this treaty, something like 150 days from now, um, I think they're going to realize that the world is just fine. They have access to everything they had access to the day before with respect to Russia because they actually weren't getting anything out of the imagery they collect on, through open skies. Um, and, uh, and so from that perspective, um, they haven't. They, they simply haven't lost anything. And, and Patty Jane, if you could, uh, I'm sorry, if you could remind me, what was the second part of that question? Uh, yeah, the second part was what other effective means, if any, are there for positive engagement with Russia on military issues? So, you know, we, we have a very effective channel with the the Chad. So, uh, General Milley, uh, the Russian, um, uh, the Russian chief of defense. We are able to to talk. The Russians respect that channel. Uh, it's been how we've maintained deconfliction in Syria. It's how uh, we get together and prevent, um, you know, miscalculations, risks, uncertainties. What are you doing? What are you doing? The, the Chads can talk, and that has been a viable channel. The, the, the problem is Russia isn't interested in behaving like a responsible stakeholder. We, we had a saying uh, when I was in the administration that we, we would like to have a positive, more cooperative relationship with Russia. We think it's a bad idea that they get gobbled up by China. Vladimir Putin seems to disagree. He seems to, to think it's just okay for Russia to be gobbled up by China, which is what's happening every single day. Um, but Russia couldn't restrain itself from doing what, forgive me if any of your audience members are, are, are below age, but uh, they can't help themselves from doing stupid shit. So every time the Trump administration would try to find an, a footing for a more positive relationship, we would try um, uh, cooperation in the CT track, we would have arms control discussions, the Russians would go and invade Libya. They'd go and invade Syria. They'd go and hack the OPCW. They'd go uh, and use chemical weapons in violation of the Chemical Weapons Convention in Britain, a NATO ally with whom we have an Article 5 security guarantee. Until the Russians can somehow restrain themselves from doing stupid shit, there's not really much evidence that they're interested in a more positive relationship. And it just really, you know, it begs the question, can we, can we stop you know, asking what the U.S. can do or what the West can do to have a more positive relationship with Russia. Let's start asking the question, what can Russia do to have a more positive relationship with the West? Because if I were, you know, a colonel or, uh, you know, a field grade officer in the Russian military, I'd be, I'd be really worried about what war I'm going to have to fight in, in, in the next 10 or 15 years. Because it's not going to be NATO invading Russian territory. Um, they can't say the same about what's going to be happening in Vladivostok and Siberia. Yeah, I was, I was thinking of a of a quote in Tim Stolmine, so I'll choose a PG version. Um, you know, Russians don't take take a dumb son without a plan, and that was Fred Thompson in the Hunt for Red October. And so, it, it, why I bring that up is the idea that you know Russia will somehow be, um, you know, the world may not end if New Start expires, but if Russia may uh, that there's some leverage to be obtained by holding a gun to New Start's head, I think is a false hope as well. Um, I think. Uh, Vladimir Putin, as, as Tim has outlined, probably has a plan for that scenario. And I think it's a plan that the United States, probably U.S. security, doesn't really benefit from. With regard to open skies, I mean, I, I largely agree with um, Tim's take on it. If if the treaty, and, I'm, and I'm, I believe the treaty still serves some purpose for imagery collection, I think it serves a very strong purpose in terms of allied cohesion. But if the treaty no longer serves the same level of, uh, of sort of has the same value as it did um, when it was first envisioned, then it seems like the U.S., which has had some luck in improving the treaty through the implementation process at the OSCC, 
could stay in the agreement, could improve the treaty, could ask Russia or other parties to find a new agreement, which perhaps involves commercial imagery. Um, but I don't think, you know, commercial imagery will solve this. To me, it's a little bit of hand-waving. There is more to it than just that. Um, and we can't completely devalue the the multilateral nature of the treaty and the amount of conversation we're able to have with our allies in the context of that treaty. And again, the U.S. in, in this administration has made gains um, in coordinating with its allies to turn screws on Russia. Is that going to resolve all of Russia's violations? No, but this goes back to my original point, which is um, purely withdrawing from an agreement does not necessarily impose costs on Russia. To Tim's point, um, if we're able to stop Russian overflights of certain military and civilian infrastructure, it's possible to do that within the treaty too. There is a reason why um, the U.S. declared material breach within the context of the INF Treaty and sought to impose countermeasures which would otherwise violate the treaty. Um, it's unclear to me exactly why the U.S. was not able to reach material breach in the context of open skies, but if they had done so, then they could have imposed some of these countermeasures like flight restrictions over certain areas, if that's a big CI concern for the intelligence community um, and the U.S. military, or it could have pursued other means to improve the treaty. But, you know, I think that, you know, Russia's violations, as Tim points out, largely in the European security framework, um, conventional arms control space, has really poisoned the well. Um, and it makes it really hard for the U.S. to promote certain ideas to modernize the arms control infrastructure when uh, U.S. government officials in the past two administrations have been busy trying to put out fires on that front. Now, I think there is a bit of a firewall, as Tim pointed out, between um, open skies and the related agreements and the new START treaty, which is about fundamentally about strategic offensive weapons. Um, and hopefully, uh, if there is success for Ambassador Billingsley in his uh, strategic dialogue with Deputy Foreign Minister Ryabkov, and they're able to secure an agreement, whether it's extending New START or replacing with something else, um, they can quickly move on to figuring out what to do in Europe. Because I think, as Tim rightly pointed out, this is a tough question. It's not just a political question on, uh, about how we feel about Russia, how much we don't like them. It's about what seriously does the United States want to do in military technical arms control as it relates to Europe. Uh, we're getting to the end here. So, uh, Peter, I'd like to hand it over to you. Um, do you want to comment on this or have any have any final thoughts you want to bring up before we start to wrap up? Uh, no, I don't have any. I don't have any comment on that. I think they covered it well. It's uh, are you I don't know how much time we have left. No, I don't have any I don't have any final comments at, at this point. I think I've uh, touched everything I wanted to touch upon. Thank you. OK, great. Well, unless anyone wants to take a final jab at something they missed, um, feel free to interrupt me. I, I think we're about to wrap up here. Um, this has been a great event. I think we had great debate from both sides, covered a lot of issues. Um, I'd like to thank our three panelists again for joining us today and for sharing their insights on the Open Skies Treaty and also thank our audience for joining us for this important conversation. Um, and so immediately following the event, you'll receive a survey that we hope you'll complete so that we can bring ideas that you care about to the public square. Um, like I mentioned before, you'll get to see a recording of this event out shortly. So again, uh, thanks to everyone who joined us and, for, and to our panelists, and hope you have a great day.